According to the Courier-Journal, a passenger on a flight from Chicago to Louisville was forcibly removed from an airplane after the airline overbooked the flight and no passenger was willing to give up his or her seat for a stipend from the airline. Three members of security apparently began speaking with the man who refused to leave. They then grabbed him and yanked him out of his seat and dragged him from the plane. Here's what the spokesperson for United Airlines had to say, quote, Flight 3411 from Chicago to Louisville was overbooked. After our team looked for volunteers, one customer refused to leave. The aircraft was voluntarily, and law enforcement was asked to come to the gate. We apologize for the overbooked situation. Further details on the removed customer should be directed elsewhere. The Courier-Journal reports that passengers were told the plane had been overbooked by four seats. The airline offered a $400 travel voucher and a hotel stay, which nobody took them up on. At that point, they had the computer randomly select four travelers on the flight and tell them to give up their seats to United employees who were required in Louisville for the next day. One doctor, who said he needed to see patients in the morning, refused to get out of his seat, at which point security carted him off. Here is the Courier-Journal. Quote, Witness Audra Bridges said the man became very upset and said that he was a doctor who needed to see patients at a hospital in the morning. The manager told him that security would be called if he did not leave willingly, Bridges said, and the man said he was calling his lawyer. The man was able to get back on the plane after initially being taken off. His face was bloody and he seemed disoriented, Bridges said, and he ran to the back of the plane. (laughs) Passengers asked to get off the plane as a medical crew came on to deal with the passengers, she said, and passengers were then told to go back to the gate so that officials could tidy up the plane before taking off. United Airlines is taking a serious hit publicly for this incident, as well they should. It is appalling. Here's what the United Contract of Carriage states, quote, All of UA's flights are subject to overbooking, which could result in UA's inability to provide previously confirmed reserved space for a given flight or for the class of service reserved. Under Rule 25 of their Code of Carriage, United states that it will will request volunteers, but that if nobody volunteers, they can deny people boarding involuntarily in accordance with UA's boarding priority. If you're removed from a flight involuntarily, the airline pays you a multiple of the airfare beyond your original ticket. This isn't an unreasonable unreasonable policy, actually. Passengers routinely miss flights. Overbooking is common practice in order to fill planes instead of wasting money and time flying extra routes. But there are two elements here that are unreasonable, if not legally, then certainly in terms of business. First... There's the question of the airline employees bumping paying passengers. Yes, the airlines have contracts with their stupid unions that require a certain number of staffers on particular flights. But when the unions trump the customers, the business is doing a terrible job. I will admit this has happened to me. I've been forced to miss a speech before hundreds of college students because the airline canceled my flight, then refused to book me on the next flight in order to fly a bunch of its own employees. Second, there's the problem of force. Why didn't United decide which passengers were bumped before boarding them? Or better yet, keep upping the offer until somebody on the plane took it. 400 bucks isn't a lot of money to give to somebody to compensate them for having to stay overnight in a location that prevents them from working the next day. Is there any question that if the company had simply upped its bid, somebody would have taken them up on it? In the end, people are going to call for government regulation because that's what they do. But this is actually a really good example of the market working. United is going to take a massive public relations hit today. They'll lose hundreds of thousands of dollars over this fiasco. Their stock price may even be affected. They'll change their policy to ensure this never happens again. Other companies will take advantage with better service, and customers will be served. And that customer who was removed will probably be amply compensated in settlement too. The market still works, even if people are going to want government action on stupidities like this. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. All right, so we have a lot coming up today. Today is the last day before Passover. Passover begins tonight, so we're going to try and jam-pack the show even more than usual. In a little while, we're going to be having on a feminist advocate from Connecticut named Jillian Gilchrist, and she has a column in which she says that originalists are all sexist. So I have a few questions uh, for Ms. Gilchrist, so we'll be discussing with her shortly. But first... We want to say thank you to our friends over at Ring.com. So if you are somebody who worries about security, I worry about security a lot. My wife and I uh, are deeply worried about security and have been for years. Basically, ever since I did the Piers Morgan interview on CNN, I've been getting death threats pretty regularly. And so we are worried about people coming to the house and burglarizing the house. And we're also worried about people who ring the doorbell to see if somebody's home and then decide whether to enter the house or not. And that's what Ring.com is good for. So Ring.com, what they do is they have a Ring video doorbell. You put it on your fence or on your gate or on your front door and they ring the doorbell and then you can actually see a camera shot of the person who's outside the door and what's cool is that you can do it from anywhere. So if I'm sitting right here after the show and somebody arrives at my house and they ring the doorbell, I can pick up my phone, I can see exactly who's at the door and I can determine whether or not this is somebody who is safe or not. This is really great for preventing burglaries because most burglaries are, they ring first. They want to find out whether somebody's home, then they know you're not home and then they rob the place. 
This helps prevent that. And right now, they have a, an advanced motion detection technology that you can get with the Ring of Security Kit, which includes the, vi the Ring Video Doorbell for that front door, and then a Ring Stick-Up Cam, which is a wireless weatherproof HD camera to keep an eye on other parts of your property. They both install in minutes. I've installed them myself. And when they're working together, they do provide that 24-7 monitoring of your entire home, whether you are there or whether you're actually at the office or someplace else. Uh, again, when I'm out of town, I rely on Ring to make sure that you know everything is okay at home. And, uh, and I really enjoy and we use their product a lot, obviously. For a limited time, listeners to this show can get $150 off a Ring of Security Kit. Right now, just go to ring.com slash Ben, ring.com slash Ben. Use that slash Ben so you get the $150 off that Ring of Security Kit. Plus, they'll know that we sent you ring.com slash Ben. Again, ring.com slash Ben for that $150 off the Ring of Security Kit. Okay, so the big news over the weekend, we'll get to Gorsuch in a little while, but Gorsuch was sworn in justice, justice now, Gorsuch. Uh, has been sworn in to the Supreme Court, which is cool. Um, but the big story over the weekend was not that. The big story over the weekend was obviously what's been happening in Syria. So the big question has been, what exactly is the plan here? And the Trump administration has not made very clear that there is a plan. So I, I offered two theories last week as to what could be going on. One is Trump saw some stuff on TV and fired a few missiles at it. Very possible, because that would fit with his personality. The other is that Trump saw some stuff on TV, saw that it was really bad, and then went to his people and said, let's come up with a coherent, cohesive strategy, and the first step will be firing some cruise missiles at this particular airbase that was responsible for the gas attack. Now, it is worth noting that a couple of effects have happened here. One is that the Syrian government immediately launched a plane from the airbase that was supposed to be out of order and began launching air raids against their enemies right afterward to demonstrate that they had not been hurt by the United States, which is sort of a black eye for the Trump administration. The other thing that's happened is that Russia has become very aggressive in its rhetoric. Russia obviously sees a central interest in Syria. One of the reasons is because Russia has propped up the dictator Assad there, and if he falls, then their credibility in terms of guarantees for the Iranian regime, uh, in terms of the Iraqi regime, which is now at least partially sponsored by the Iranians, that guarantee seems to be worth a little bit less. And so the Russians want to make sure that they stand by their man in Syria. So they're getting very aggressive. They're saying that they're, they're going to treat any bombing like this in the future as an act of war. Now, the real question is going to be, do, do we want to go up against Russia here? Do we want to play a game of chicken with them? If we do play a game of chicken, are they actually going to try and shoot down an American plane? If they did shoot down an American plane, would we then be in a state of full-scale war with Moscow? Vladimir Putin is not in a strong position in his own country, other than the fact that he controls the military and the money. So, I mean, that, that, that sounds funny because those are the two most important things to control. But he does not control the population. The population clearly is not super fond of Vladimir Putin. And so one of the ways he has to maintain his power is by promoting this image of himself as a very, very powerful guy who will stand up to anyone, up to and including the United States of America. That means that he's going to want to play chicken. The United States may have more of an interest in allowing him to play chicken and give off a sense of superiority to his own people than in challenging the Assad regime. But if Assad keeps firing gas bombs, Trump has now set the red line. The red line exists. If he, if he keeps gassing people, Trump is going to have to do something. Otherwise, he is not just Obama. He's actually worse than Obama because he's shown that he's like Bill Clinton in 1998 after the bombings in Kenya and Tanzania that just wants to shoot a camel in the ass and be done with it. And that's not a winning strategy when it comes to deterrence. So there are a lot of mixed messages coming out of the administration. One message is that Assad has to go. The other message is that Assad can sort of stay. Chris Wallace over at Fox News, he asked H.R. McMaster, who's the new national security advisor, a guy who really does know military strategy. His book, Dereliction of Duty, is required reading over at the War College. Uh, and it is a very, very good book. It's worth getting. He, so here's Wallace asking McMasters, aren't you sending a few mixed messages here? The Trump administration seems to be sending mixed signals this weekend. U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley says that uh, getting rid of Assad is a priority. On the other hand, Secretary of State Tillerson says that first we have to get rid of ISIS, destroy ISIS. Assad can wait. So which is it? And uh, McMaster didn't have a great answer for that. Bernie Sanders, of course, says that the Trump administration has no plan either. Uh, when, you, when you get this guy screaming at you, it, you always are going to take it with a, a large grain of salt. But here is Bernie Sanders talking about Syria and why he cannot find his pudding no matter how hard he tries. Asking the Republicans, what are you going to do when you throw 20 million people off of health insurance? How many of them are going to die? What's your plan? Okay, uh, again, he, uh, 
So <laughs> we'll get to we'll get to what the actual plan is in just a second. But first, I want to bring in to join us uh, a special guest, Jillian Gilchrist, uh, who is a feminist advocate from Connecticut. She champions public policy on issues of gender, gender-based violence, and reproductive choice. She's an organizer with the Women's March in Connecticut, and she currently teaches political advocacy at the UConn School of Social Work. Uh, Jillian Gilchrist is also a um, she, she also wrote a column for her site in which uh, in which she talked specifically about the idea that Judge Gorsuch would be terrible for women. And the reason that he would be terrible for women is because he's a proponent of originalism. Uh, professor Gilchrist, are you, are you actually a professor or, or is it just Miss Gilchrist? I want to address you properly. Hi, it's Miss Gilchrist. OK. Thank you. Ms. Gilchrist, Thank thanks, well, th- thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. So what you actually wrote is you wrote that Gorsuch, like Antonin Scalia, is a proponent of originalism, which means he believes a judge should attempt to interpret the words of the Constitution as they were understood at the time they were written. When the Constitution was ri- written, women couldn't own property. In 1787, women didn't have the right to vote. It would be 133 years before women won that fight, a fight they fought for 72 years. Considering women had no rights when the Constitution was written and there was no mention of women in the Constitution, originalism is sexist. So let me ask you first to expand on that. Is it the Constitution that's sexist or originalism that's sexist or both? Um, Well, actually, the original Constitution is sexist. um, And then the originalist perspective that actually looks to the original document is also sexist. And so um, we know that when a judge practices originalism, they look backwards. Um, They don't try to see the Constitution in the current context of society. And so by looking backwards, as I said in my piece, um, at the time the Constitution was written, women didn't have any rights. Uh, We were property. So um, yes, the originalist perspective is sexist. And so I think Neil Gorsuch will not be good for women on the Supreme Court. Okay, so two quick things. One, you're right, obviously, that women did not have rights under the Constitution in many ways. The idea that there were property is an overstatement. They couldn't be sold into slavery. I mean, black people were property. Women were not property under the Constitution of the United States. But the but I do have a basic question here, which is, what do you think a, jo- a judge's job is? Right? I mean, a judge, from where I sit, and according to the structure of the Constitution, his job is to interpret the law as it's written, not to make up what he wishes the law were. That's what we have legislatures for. That's why we have people who vote on things. The idea that you're going to have some sort of super legislature made up of the great wise men who do, or women who decide what a text means that has nothing to do with the original meaning of the Constitution, what do you think a judge's job should be? Well, so what an originalist actually does, though, is goes even beyond um, that interpretation to um, an originalist thinks that the 14th Amendment, which would actually give women equal protection, um, based on what we know from Justice Scalia, uh, he didn't actually think that that protected women. And so he thinks that uh, equal protection does not prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. Um, an originalist like Scalia also feels that the right to privacy is not included in the Constitution. And so right. um, I, I understand what a judge's job is, but then we also have, thankfully, the legislature. Um, and so the legislature can pass public policies that will give women rights. And, the, and, the, and Scalia, to be fair, that, that's what Scalia says. I mean, that's what Robert Bork says. That's what Just, Justice Thomas says. What, I mean, I'm an originalist. This is what originalists say. We say, this is why we have legislatures. The purpose of a legislature is to pass things like the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You don't have judges who just sit there and then pass legislation. This is why we have separate branches. So again, I, I ask you, you know, you're, you're upset at the outcome of some of, the, of, some of what the, the judges say because the judges are reading the text according to what texts mean. I mean, it's not poetry. But what do you think a judge should do that is distinct from what a legislature does? The, well, to answer that, I mean, what now is happening is so the legislature passes a policy to um, give women greater access. Let's use Hobby Lobby, since that's a case that Neil Sor- uh, Gorsuch you know, ruled on. Um, the Congress passed health care reform to allow women to have greater access to birth control. And when that then went through the court process, because um, uh, conservatives argued against that, um, when it went through the court process, it was ruled down. And so, you know, we yes, we might have the legislature. Yes, we have judges. But with an originalist perspective, um, like Neil Gorsuch's and like Scalia's, um, when we try to progress women through public policy, it then is still being shot down in the courts because that originalist perspective, as I mentioned 
is a sexist perspective. Okay, so uh, again, the problem is that, I mean, take Hobby Lobby as, as an example. It wasn't that Neil Gorsuch is against contraception, presumably. I mean, he, his church apparently is pro-contraception. The, the idea that, that Neil Gorsuch has a personal view that's anti-contraception, that's not accurate. I mean, Neil Gorsuch's view is that there's a First Amendment to the Constitution which protects the freedom of religion of people like the religious owners of Hobby Lobby and said that they don't have to violate their own religion in the provision of health care. Now, you may disagree with that policy. That's why we have an amendment process. So the Constitution does it, it basically enshrine certain fundamental rights. If we disagree with those fundamental rights, there's an amendment process. Or do you think that we should just get rid of the Constitution completely? Because it seems to me that's sort of what you want. We shouldn't have judges. We shouldn't have judicial review. We shouldn't have a Constitution. We should just have a legislature that does all the things that you want them to do, or judges that just say the legislature can do all those things. No, not not at all. Um, we could certainly we need to pass public policies or we could amend the Constitution. And right. women did try that through the Equal Rights Amendment. But that, too, didn't make it through. Right. Um, right. And so to your point about Hobby Lobby, it is the first decision where two competing interests, the religious fr freedom, religious rights of individuals did actually then trump um, the rights of those who need access to birth control. And so um, I think a different judge in that position who doesn't have an originalist perspective like Neil Gorsuch's wouldn't have ruled in that way. So how should so how should a judge read a text? Should a judge just decide what the judge wants to be the law and then just say this is the law? Like what no, standard do you all. use? So my standard is that with the Constitution, I think it was supposed to be a document, a guiding document. And so I don't think anyone at the time the Constitution was written thought that the world would always exist as it was. And so I certainly think we need that text, but we should interpret it in light of what is happening in present day. Um, we've changed a lot as a culture and as a society. And so to assume that you can use a text from hundreds of years ago to decide cases today um, just seems ridiculous. Except that we do that with texts literally every day in the courts. We use the Sherman Antitrust Act to, to rule on antitrust. We use the we use the Food and Drug Administration Act to determine what the FDA what, what the FDA is allowed to regulate. Legislation is designed to be interpreted as text. You know, this is just basic legal 101. I mean, you're supposed to read a text as it's written, not as a piece of T.S. Eliot. Yes, but we use that text to interpret current day problems. And it, it seems that when it comes to women's rights, um, originalist perspective tends to side on the air of always looking backward, backward and not looking at current day. Because, to see they, because they're trying to, because if you're looking, if I wrote a piece of legislation 10 years ago and I said to you, okay, are, you and I write a, a piece of legislation today, right? And we use the language of today. We mean something by that language. In this conversation, somebody will read this 100 years from now and we will have met what we're saying to each other. We understand what we're saying. If somebody wants to read what we're talking about today, and then it turns out that all the words that we're using now mean the reverse because things have changed. Did our conversation mean the reverse of what it meant or does it mean what we're talking about right now? Words have meaning at the time they are said. And to try and read new meanings into old words just because, quote unquote, times have changed, you can end up with some really bizarre results. I mean, and, and the problem here is that, you know, you, like, you may not like what Neil Gorsuch is trying to do, but at least it's a rule of interpretation. In, in the constitutional structure, what we've had is the Supreme Court very often reversing itself on the exact same language by using the sort of rules that you want. So, for example, in Plessy versus Ferguson, you had the Supreme Court say that the 14th Amendment did not, uh, did not apply to black people insofar as segregation was okay. And then 50 years after that, they say, no, it turns out the 14th Amendment actually meant that segregation is not okay anymore. Well, that's silly. I mean, it either meant one or it meant the other. It didn't mean two different things at the same time. One of those decisions is wrong and one of those decisions is right. That's true for every judicial decision. The idea that we can just look to our hearts to determine what a text meant 200 years ago is, is silly when we can find out what they meant 200 years ago by reading what they're talking about now. And yes, I wouldn't disagree where you made the point, though, that our conversation we're having today, what we're saying to one another is what we're saying to one another. And if looked at 100 years from now, it would still mean the same thing. But people using our conversation 100 years from now would have to apply it to that current day because it's not going to look the same. And so we do need to look back at texts, but we need to interpret them um, with the current climate. And so... To say that, I mean, Justice Scalia came out and said that the 14th Amendment does not prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. Justice Scalia came out and said that there is no right to privacy in the Constitution. Right, because there aren't any of those things in the Constitution. If you want to establish one, you create an amendment. There's no right to abortion in the Constitution. 
the right to privacy is not the right to have an abortion. The right to privacy also covers the right to access birth control. And the, so that yes, Griswold versus Connecticut, 1965. I'm well aware of the case. But the idea that that, that the that the founders, the people who wrote the the Constitution, were deeply concerned with access to birth control in the federal Constitution is just silly. If you want, if you this is why we ha- again, this is why we have legislatures. The point is that I'm in favor of availability of contraception. This is why I would elect people who would be in favor of availability of contraception. If you just want the courts to do what you want them to do, why not just appoint a couple of oligarchs? We can have Ruth Bader Ginsburg be our queen, and then we don't actually have to have a legislature anymore. We can skip all these expensive election things. Donald Trump wouldn't be president, and uh, and the notorious RBG would just rule us all. The problem for women in this country is that when we pass public policies to um, increase our rights, they are then shot down by the court who doesn't believe what you just explained, that we don't have a right to privacy or that we don't have equal protection under the law. And so I well, don't want to. That's not accurate. There are dozens of states that had already legalized abortion in, in large part before Roe v. Wade, and the courts had never struck that down on any on any grounds. I mean, now you're reversing it. I mean, the fact is that that if a if a state legislature passes a law that makes availability of contraception a thing, that's still not the same thing as, as for example, Hobby Lobby, where you're actually forcing people to pay for your contraception in violation of their religious obligations. So if you're just talking about access to health care, then a, a, a state is perfectly capable of passing whatever law that it wants, and the courts won't strike it down. There are countervailing there are countervailing interests in some of these cases under the Constitution, and that's what the Supreme Court is talking about in an originalist jurisprudence. But if you want to pass a constitutional amendment, go for it. Again, I, I guess my final question is this, and I, I unfortunately have to let you go because it's an interesting conversation, but my final question is this. Why bother having elections? Why bother having legislatures? Why do you, if the, if the American people are constantly doing things that are stupid, or if the American people are constantly electing legislatures that are terrible, and if we can just have judges who are going to be able to apply the Constitution as you see fit, again, I ask, why not just appoint Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the actual queen of the United States, and she can rule from above, and she'll do all the things you want, and why isn't that okay with you? I mean, tyranny with someone who you agree with seems okay with you a little bit. Tyranny is never good. And right now I feel as though we're under a tyranny. Um, Why? What, what is it? I, again, I'm not a Trump fan, but I'm just wondering what he's done exactly. But we can, we can get into that in a bit. That, that, that would be another a- conversation for another time. Um, no, I certainly think checks and balances are what we need in this country. Um, you know, I'd end by saying what we haven't tried in this country is equal representation. And so maybe uh, when we get a legislative body that is equally men and women, and we get a Supreme Court that's equally men and women, we might see. What about, when, what about when we have an electorate that's 54 percent women? At that point, can we say that we have equal representation because most nope. people who vote are women? <laughs> uh, nope, not yet. Why not? Uh, we, uh, what happened to the women? Are they are they all slaves? Well, we might have uh, we might have equal voting, but we do not have equal representation in any of our bodies of government. And so, until we have that, um, I think we'll see a big difference in the policies and the rights we have as women in this country. So a woman is not really a, a female voter if she if she elects a man. I'm I'm just I'm confused again by like like no, they're not. At all. I just think that, to your point of should we have just a judicial branch ruling all, um, I was answering that. No, we need uh, equal representation in all leadership bodies in this country. And so I was speaking to that piece. Um, I think it's fantastic we have both men and women uh, voting for both men and women. Okay. So Ivanka Trump for president then. She's a woman. So, yay. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I appreciate you taking the time. Jillian Gilchrist, very kind of you to come on. Feminist advocate from Connecticut. She is she's at the political advocacy. She t- teaches political advocacy at the UConn so- School of Social Work. And if people want to find her work, what's the best way to get in touch? Great. They can find me on Twitter, um, at Jillcrest. Uh, that would be the best way. Great. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, so we uh, we have to. Say, I want to say thank you to uh, to our advertisers over at ZipRecruiter.com. So if you're looking to hire, not on the basis of sex, but on the basis of merit, and uh, and you would like to just hire somebody who's great for the job, the best way to do that is over at ZipRecruiter.com. You can post your job to 200 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, with a single clip and st- click instead of having to go all around and post at a thousand different sites. Uh, you can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. You post once, and those candidates just roll right. And they have a very easy to use interface. So you can dismiss people or accept people. It's great. We're starting to use it over at dailywire.com. And right now, my listeners can post jobs over at ZipRecruiter for free by going to ziprecruiter.com slash dailywire. That is ziprecruiter.com slash dailywire. Ziprecruiter.com slash dailywire. You can post your job for free. Make sure you get that slot filled again on the basis of merit, not on the basis of the gender of the person. Oh my 
God. Okay, so, all righty. So, uh, I, I want to discuss this Syria thing for one more second before we have to break um, on um, on the on the podcast uh, Facebook Live. So, as I say before, uh, sorry, final note on that interview. I just would like to note, again, there is no reason that Miss Gilchrist could come up with, none, that suggests that Ruth Bader Ginsburg should not be Queen of the United States. She says she's against tyranny, but then she says that Ruth Bader Ginsburg should be able to read whatever she wants into the Constitution in order to apply Ruth Bader Ginsburg's values. She says that she's in favor of checks and balances, and then explicitly says that she's angry that the Supreme Court would act to check and balance a legislature that oversteps its boundaries in violation of rights. This just demonstrates once and for all that when it comes to the left view of the judiciary, it is judicial tyranny they are after. They are not after any sort of consistent rule of law. They have no idea what judges should be doing as opposed to legislatures. They think that judges should just be doing the things they want them to do, and they have no good answers on any of this. Okay, when it comes to Syria, as I was saying before the interview, the fact is there's a lot of confusion on Syria. Two messages coming from the administration. One is that, that... that Assad should be left in place, and the other is get rid of him. So here's Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, saying that the first priority is to defeat ISIS, and for the moment, let's leave Assad alone. We believe that the first priority is the defeat of ISIS, that by defeating ISIS and removing their caliphate from their control, we have now eliminated at least or minimized a particular threat, not just to the United States, but to the whole stability in the region. And once the ISIS uh, threat has been reduced or eliminated, I think we can turn our attention directly to stabilizing the situation in Syria. We're hopeful that we can prevent a continuation of the civil war and that we can bring the parties to the table to begin the process of political discussions. Clearly that requires the participation of the regime and with the support of their allies and we're hopeful that Russia will choose to play a constructive role in supporting ceasefires through their own astonishment. I don't think that Tillerson is entirely wrong here. When Tillerson says we have to defeat ISIS and we just have to stop Assad from basically running roughshod over everybody, I think that's probably the right strategy. As I said last week, ousting Assad seems to me a secondary priority. It's not like get rid of Assad, that'll make the country better, and then go after ISIS. The question is whether Assad even cares about going after ISIS. I don't think he does. I think we're going to have to do it ourselves. That said, we can keep Assad in check at the same time we are going after ISIS. The idea that we can't walk and chew gum at the same time is silly. But I do not think that we are in a position to rebuild the country at the same time that we're trying to protect people uh, from Assad and ISIS. I think that's a mistake. I mean, getting rid of Assad and then having a giant chaotic vacuum that seems to be opening a can of worms we have no answers to. Uh, H.R. McMaster, the, the national security advisor, he still seems desperate to keep Russia involved in this. He says Russia should be part of the Russia so the, the solution in Syria. Medvedev wrote, the U.S. is, quote, on the verge of a military clash with Russia. So what are we prepared to do if Russia defends its interests in Syria? Well, this is part of the problem in Syria is is Russia's sponsorship for this murderous regime. And so uh, we we would want to appeal rationally uh, to Russia. This is a great opportunity for the Russian leadership to reevaluate what they're doing. Why they are supporting a regime that is committing mass murder against its own people. So so it it would be a great opportunity, except they're not going to do it. So what do we do next? Well, that's the big question. So to get that answer, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com right now and become a subscriber. Uh, You got a little bit of extra today, but normally you wouldn't. So that means that you have to go over to dailywire.com. You can see the rest of the show live. You can also be part of the mailbag, which we'll do a little bit later this week. And right now, for $8 a month, you get that subscription. If you become an annual subscriber, you get a free signed copy of Reasons to Vote Democrat, a comprehensive guide by our own Michael Knowles, Yale graduate. It's, uh, it's gotten stellar review, really, a stellar review from weeklystandard.com, which is hysterical since it is an actual blank book. Um, but it is a great gag gift. It is the most thorough book on democratic ideology there is. Go check it out over at dailywire.com. Become an annual subscriber. Or if you just want to listen later, then go over to iTunes or SoundCloud. Leave us a review. We appreciate it. It helps iTunes recognize that we are a massive podcast because, indeed, we are. Our numbers are stellar. You are listening to the grandest and most glorious conservative podcast in the nation. So the question is, what do we do with Assad? So you got Tillerson on the one side basically saying, leave him in place. You got McMaster saying Russia can be part of the solution. And then within the same administration, you have Nikki Haley saying Assad has to go. Obviously, obviously defeat ISIS. Secondly, we don't see a peaceful Syria with Assad in there. Thirdly, get the Iranian influence out and then finally move towards a political solution. Okay, so this is not quite as much in conflict as people are making it out to be. Uh, She is saying 
almost the same thing Tillerson is saying. First, Assad, first ISIS has to go, then we'll deal with Assad. McCain says no. John McCain, who's, who's been militantly in favor of getting rid of Assad since 2013, he says, let's fight ISIS and Assad at the same time. This is why nobody likes John McCain. So you can't, uh, to a large degree, Bashar Assad, by polarizing the Syrian people, have also given rise to ISIS and al-Qaeda. So uh, they are both connected, and I believe that the United States of America can address both at the same time. Okay, and we can. The question is, what sort of resources do we want to dedicate to getting rid of Assad when we're going to have to replace him, and it might be easier just to leave him in place so long as he's not crossing swords with us. Marco Rubio thinks he's going to continue crossing swords with us, uh, but his excuse is really bad here, Senator Rubio. As long as Assad is there, you're going to have a radical jihadist Sunni element, even if you destroy ISIS. It'll be al-Nusra and that new coalition. These people who have been killed and gassed and, and uh, human rights violations against them will never accept Assad as a rightful ruler, and they will join or become radicalized in order to fight. You cannot have a stable Syria without jihadist elements on the ground as long as Bashar al-Assad is in power. And, and the quicker they realize that, the better our strategy is going to be. But this idea that somehow you can just defeat ISIS and then we'll figure it out with Assad, it's not going to work. Okay, no, it, it is going to work better than your strategy, which is to get rid of Assad and then figure it out with the jihadists. I mean, the idea that the jihadists are going to be our friend if we get rid of Assad, that's just silly. I mean, that is one of the lessons that we learned in Iraq, which is... We, they actually want to repeat. This is this is amazing. Actually, McCain and Rubio actually want to repeat the Assad stra- the, the the Saddam Hussein strategy. The big problem with getting rid of Saddam Hussein was not getting rid of Saddam Hussein. It was that we then disbanded the military because we had nothing to do, and the jihadists decided that they were then going to make a move, a counterinsurgency move, and we didn't have enough boots on the ground to deal with it. Okay, that is a problem. This is a, a mistake H.R. McMaster is not going to make. His book about Vietnam basically suggests that the reason we lost Vietnam is because we pursued a policy of not enough boots on the ground. If we're going to go in, according to McMaster, you go in hard. And if we're not going to go in, then you don't go in at all. Uh, but I think that's a better strategy than, than McCain's and Rubio's. It sounds like they want to get rid of Assad, and then they think that the jihadists will just be complacent, that they'll suddenly be fine, everything will be hunky-dory. That's not the way this is going to work. Jihadists are not joining just because they hate Assad. Jihadists are joining because they are jihadists. And you can get rid of Assad, but al-Qaeda and ISIS are still going to be the predominant organizations in the region of vacuum, looks for the most organized actor, and those two terrorist groups are the most organized actors in the region. That's why on this one, I'm actually with Tillerson and McMaster. I'm not with Nikki Haley, McCain, and Rubio. Now, what's been really weird about all of this is that Trump clearly does not have a strategy, or at least there's debate inside the administration as to what exactly he's going to be doing here. And yet the media seem over the moon. Fareed Zakaria uh, was very excited that Trump was, was able to strike a blow against the Assad regime. Here's what he had to say on CNN. The long-term prospects for peace in Syria remain very gloomy. But no matter the complications, in the short term, the president struck a blow against evil, for which I congratulate him. And if he was moved to this action because he saw heartrending pictures of children, that's fine. I would only ask that he look again at those images. Perhaps they would move him not simply to drop bombs, but also to provide more aid and food to these war-torn people. Okay, we'll get to that in just a second. But it is interesting to watch how the media is celebrates American involvement in, in the Middle East after spending years saying that it was just terrible. It was just terrible. And then it turns out that reality tends to slap isolationism in the face, as I said last week. Zachariah was very much for this, even though there really seems to be no second step. What's amazing is that Democrats who realize that isolationism doesn't work, they're now trying to figure out a way to cast Trump as an isolationist in spite of the Syrian strike. So Lawrence O'Donnell, it's amazing. People on the left accuse people on the right of being conspiracy theorists, and they point to crazy people like Alex Jones, and they suggest that Alex Jones is representative of the entire right, which is just nonsense. Alex Jones is a fringe kook, and everybody on the right who's legitimate knows that Alex Jones is a fringe kook. But he's also not on MSNBC. Here's an actual host on MSNBC suggesting crazy towns about Donald Trump. Wouldn't it be nice if it was just completely, totally, absolutely impossible to suspect that Vladimir Putin orchestrated what happened in Syria this week Mm. so that his friend in the White House could have a big night with missiles and all of the praise he's picked up over the last 24 hours? Wouldn't it be so nice if you couldn't even in your wildest dreams, imagine a scenario like that. 
wouldn't it be great if we could go back to Wag the Dog being a semi, being being a sitcom plot, you know? Exactly. And yeah. I don't know what it is. Is, there, is it a 2% chance? Is it a 50% chance? Is it, I, I don't know. But what I, I don't think it's a 0% chance. And it's, it used it's just, to be. It's just a theory. Wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to theorize? It could be 2%. It could be 0%. It could be negative 73%. I don't know the answer, Rachel. But I can tell you, it is a percentage chance, which means there's a number that is not zero, but could be zero, but isn't. I mean, this is, again, if this were on the right, people would be going, are you insane? What are you even talking about? Let me explain something about Reichstag fires, okay? Reichstag fires, this is the, the left and the right, they're constantly citing to Hitler's Reichstag fire and saying that every foreign policy botch is the next Reichstag fire where somebody grabs the reins of power based on the notion that, that there's some sort of emergency, uh, or they even put the emergency out there it's themselves in order, to, in order to create this. Alex Jones is obsessed with Reichstag fires. The, the left, the hard left, is, is obsessed with Reichstag fires on MSNBC. In order for there to be a Reichstag fire, you have to, number one, have a system that is, that is capable of taking advantage to the extent that they actually establish a tyranny, and two, the fire actually has to be real. Okay, the idea that the, the Reichstag fire, one of the great myths about the Reichstag fire is the Nazis burned down the Reichstag themselves. They didn't. There was a guy named Vanderloop. He burned down the Reichstag. He was a communist. He had no ties to the Communist Party. They used that as an excuse. Okay, that's what a Reichstag fire situation actually is. What it isn't is an actual gas attack happens, uh, and you blame it on Trump and his cronies. That they actually, they, they, like, that's what O'Donnell is saying here. He's saying maybe Putin masterminded the chemical attack so Trump could look good by striking Syria. Right. Yes, I'm sure that... that Trump went to Putin and said, gas children so that I can bomb Syria and look good. I'm sure that's what happened. And then Ted Lieu says the same thing. It's possible that Trump just ordered the strike as a distraction. Maybe that's what's going on. So let me ask our liberal here on the panel. Um, how does the fact that he went up against Russia, Donald Trump, fit into the, Republican, uh, the liberal idea uh, that uh, he was installed by Putin as a stooge to do whatever Putin wanted? This is not what Putin wanted. If you're facing possible collusion with Putin, you might just want to distract people. Yes. So you're pretty so big that's what you think this is? I'm just asking. It might be. It might be. We don't know. I've learned to not predict right. Donald Trump. Right. But in this case, uh, what he did was not only unconstitutional, there's no strategy. We don't know what we're doing in Syria, how long we're going to be there. He's got U.S. ground forces there now. They're more at risk of being attacked right. because he just attacked Assad. He has to tell the American people what we're doing in Syria. He has not done that. Okay, so well, I agree that we need to do all that, but the idea that Trump did this is just a distraction, and then the entire crowd cheers, it just demonstrates how partisan everybody is, that they want to see conspiracies under their bed, even when it's probably just a knee-jerk reaction by, by Donald Trump. Okay, I want to say thank you to our advertisers over at Stamps.com. So, if you are sick of waiting in line at the post office or the grocery store for your stamps, there's a better way to do it. You go to stamps.com right now. We use stamps.com here at the office to send important letters and packages. Whenever we send out the signed photos of me, we're using stamps.com. Whenever we send out the merchandise for our, our subscribers, we are, we are using stamps.com. And you can do it from your desk right now at stamps.com. If you buy and print official U.S. postage, you either print it directly onto the envelope or you can print it onto a piece of paper and tape it to an envelope. Or you can actually print it onto a sticker and tape that to the envelope. However you do it, Stamps.com never closes. You never have to worry about going and waiting in line or being stuck uh, in, in, in a time of day when you really need to get a package into the mail, but the post office isn't open. And right now, if you go there, you get a four-week free trial. If you go to Stamps.com and use my name Shapiro, promo code Shapiro, then you get a four-week trial, including postage in a digital scale, which is a pretty awesome offer considering how much postage you're going to use in the next four weeks. Four-week trial, postage in digital scale, so that you can actually check how much things weigh and use the correct amount of postage. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else and click on the radio microphone at the top. It's right in the top of the page. And type in that promo code Shapiro, Stamps.com, enter Shapiro. I was using it for years before I even had Stamps.com as an advertiser, uh, and they are terrific. Stamps.com, and use that promo code Shapiro by clicking on that microphone at the top. Get four weeks, a free trial, plus the digital scale, and uh, it's going to be a real time saver for you. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things I hate. So... Things I like. Tonight is Passover, uh, and everybody always talks about the Ten Commandments as the Passover movie. I'm not a huge Ten Commandments fan. Um, I'm not the world's biggest fan of The Prince of Egypt, which is sort of the cartoon retelling of Exodus, but it is better than The Ten Commandments. And it has a couple of songs that are really great. Uh, one of the songs from it is the song Deliver Us, which is truly a terrific song uh, in this film. Here's a little bit of that.
All righty, so there's a there's a, a good inspirational moment. The, you know who wrote the music? Hans Zimmer. Isn't that cool? No. Uh, yeah, Hans Zimmer wrote the music. So that's that's a little known fact. The guy who wrote the music for Inception uh, and uh, and Interstellar, all the Christopher Nolan flicks at this point, he writes the music to, uh, and he wrote the music to that, which you wouldn't guess because he's usually thought of as like Pirates of the Caribbean guy or Gladiator guy, right? Because that's the sort of music that he writes. Okay, other things that I like. Uh, so I have to say, this is uh, th- this video of an, an anchor. Uh, th- this is pretty funny. Uh, this this news anchor in uh, I think this is Australia, right? Uh, and she is just not prepared for the camera to cut back to her, and what happens is funny. Melanie Vukovic, ABC News, Mount Sylvia. Now to start with <laughs> Meredith uh, There is something about human beings that is just hilarious, and that's, that one's pretty good. That's pretty spectacular. Okay, other things that are, that are amazing. Clara Jeffrey uh, is an editor-in-chief of Mother Jones, and she said that the, she was talking about Tomahawk missiles being used in Syria, and she tweeted this. She tweeted that the missiles are called Tomahawks, must enrage a lot of Native Americans. What in the world? Um, if Native Americans are deeply concerned about the name of the missiles that are used as a tribute, by the way, to that, to that, that weapon, uh, then they're crazy. That's a crazy thing to be worried about. Also worth noting, the tomahawk was actually a, a weapon that was invented by the British uh, and was given to the Native Americans. It's not even a Native American invention. Uh, but I have made the offer that if they do want to rename the tomahawk on behalf of Jews everywhere, I think that it would be awesome to have awesome weapons named after Jews. So I'm cool if they want to call it instead of a tomahawk, if they want to call it a Hebrew hammer. I'm totally cool with that. It would be Hebrew hammers raining down on Assad, Syria. Hebrew hammers raining down on Al-Qaeda. I think there would be a great irony to that. Uh, or if we really want to tick people off, then we should give it some sort of Islamic name. We should, we should actually, we, we, should, we should call it an Islamic sword or something. We should, we should you know, use, use something that really ticks everybody off if we're going to do this. It shows how stupid the left is. Really, really ridiculous. Okay, time for a couple of things that I hate. So, we begin with Hillary Clinton, who is still, I guess she's no longer wandering around the woods like, uh, like Bigfoot. Um, but she is back in the spotlight there are people who theorize that she's going to run again, which would just be awful in every way. Um, but uh, here's what she had to say about Syria. As I said yesterday afternoon, it is essential that the world does more to deter Assad from committing future murderous atrocities. But the action taken last night needs to be followed by a broader strategy to end Syria's civil war and to eliminate ISIS strongholds on both sides of the border. So I hope this administration will move forward in a way that is both strategic and consistent with our values. And I also hope that they will recognize that we cannot in one breath speak of protecting Syrian babies, and in the next, close America's doors to them. Okay, so um, it's that last line that I want to talk about, the insanity of suggesting that you have to be anti-Syrian refugee if you don't want to accept massive numbers of Syrian refugees into the country. This is the exact same argument that you constantly hear. How are you anti-abortion if you don't want to adopt the kids or if you don't want to have welfare payments increased? Okay, I can want people not to be murdered, and I can also say that it would be better if they don't live here. Okay, those two things are not actually mutually exclusive. There are lots of good reasons you don't want people moving into your country if they don't share a culture with you, a set of values with you, uh, if they are in a new economic underclass. There are lots of reasons why you might be worried about bringing an enormous number of refugees from a country that has a wildly different culture and religion from your own into the United States. That could be concerning to you for a lot of legitimate reasons. The idea that you have to accept a bunch of refugees or you just don't care that much about the refugees, even if you're bombing the people who are killing them, and if you are trying to establish refugee camps in places that are more conducive for cultural assimilation, that's just silly and it's also insulting. But again, this just demonstrates that leftism is is all empathy and no brains. Another example of this, Bill Maher, uh, he says that the, he makes the argument that was made a little bit earlier, actually, by a guest on this program. Uh, Bill Maher says that the problem with Neil Gorsuch is that he's never shown empathy. But, all, but, I'm, but Neil Gorsuch could be there for 40 years, mm-hmm. and this guy has never shown any empathy toward a human being. Uh, okay, and all the people... 
please. Do I have to, do I have to go back to the trucker in, in the freezing cold who was going to die if he sided with the corporation? Right. Okay, but, you know, th- this, is what's, this is what we're looking for. So those people who said Hillary was the lesser of two evils, good luck with your back alley abortion. Okay, good luck with your back alley abortion. Again, the idea that women are going to be forced to get back alley abortions under Neil Gorsuch is just silly towns. And, and also the idea that it's empathetic to, to allow babies to be killed is also silly towns. But this idea that the, jo- the job of a judge is empathy is just ridiculous. The job of a judge is not empathy. In fact, there's a reason that the Bible says that judges have to be careful not to be empathetic with the poor more than they are with the rich. And that is because once you are now applying your heart to cases, you are no longer a judge, you are now an advocate. This is why we have advocates. We don't need advocates as judges, and we don't need judges as advocates. We need judges to be judges and advocates to be advocates. The idea that a judge is supposed to apply his own human feeling to all of these things, that allows tyranny from above. That is not their delegated duty. That is not their delegated role in the scheme of things. Okay, other things that I hate. The New York Times has an unbelievable article today by a guy named Jack Turbin, who's over at the, I guess he's a research fellow at the Yale School of Medicine. Uh, and his article is that it, was, it would be insane not to allow children to have hormone blockers implanted in them to prevent them from becoming their, their biological sex. So a boy who is born a boy and has all XY chromosomes and is a boy who thinks he's a girl, we should at age six implant a hormone blocker so that he takes the body of a girl so that he we can later have genital surgery, remove his penis and testicles, and instead replace it with a fake vagina. And then we can give implants and we can, and we can you won't need implants, I guess, because you'll have hormone treatment, you'll develop breasts. The idea that this is not screwing up kids, it is child abuse, okay? Kids are not capable of making decisions about their own sex at the age of seven. They're not capable of making decisions about their own sex at the age of, of eight or nine. There's a reason it's called pedophilia if you have sex with a child. The idea that you can have surgery on a child approved by parents and doctors and mutilate a child's body because through through hormone blocking because you think the child is capable of making these decisions your job as an adult is to guide a child your job as an adult is not to humor everything a child thinks it is to make sure that a child grows up healthy and let's just do a quick statistical study basically what he suggests is that if you if you give kids hormone blockers they're less likely to experience discrimination and therefore less likely to commit suicide the problem of course is that he surveys a bunch of kids or he takes a survey of a bunch of kids who are at most 14 years old Again, suicidality generally doesn't appear in human beings until you hit teenage years. The idea that you're going to get a a largely suicidal population earlier and earlier is just silly. Is discrimination against people terrible? Is, you know, is is people, uh, uh, people being mean to one another? Is that bad? Yes. But the, the other, the converse idea that society is supposed to accept gender as completely arbitrary and malleable is totally crazy. And not only is it crazy, it's damaging. Let's take a statistic, okay? 80% of kids who experience gender confusion are going to eventually grow out of it, according to virtually all of the studies. So, that being the case, what you are now saying is that all of those kids should presumably get hormone blockers if they're confused about their treatment, and that elevates their risk of suicide, but it'll be okay because it doesn't elevate it that much. Okay, the, the actual transgender suicide rate over the course of a lifetime is in excess of 40%. But let's say... That even if we did this, let's say that it dropped by half. Let's say it's the biggest drop in suicide rate in the history of any population, and it drops in half. Right? It goes to 20%. So let's say now that those two kids who were the, the two kids who were going to be transgender anyway, their suicide rate dropped from their suicide risk dropped from 40% to 20% over the course of their lifetime. That's great. That's great. How about the other eight kids who are going to grow out of this, and then their suicide rate was not going to be 40%. It was going to be a lot closer to the normal suicide rate of 4%. What happens to those other eight kids? Now, statistically speaking, you are putting a larger population at risk by forwarding gender confusion and then cementing that gender confusion through hormone treatment than you are by protecting the kids who are actually suffering from gender dysphoria. There may be a way to deal with this without, treat it, without treating it as though any kid with gender dysphoria or any kid with gender confusion has to have hormone treatments, but the left hasn't come up with it yet, so instead they've come up with the idea that the entire society is supposed to accept the fiction that boys are girls and girls are boys, which is just ridiculous all the way through. Okay, final thing that I hate. Um, and Risa Aslan uh, has done a report on Orthodox Judaism naturally right before Passover because this is the great time to, to drop anti-Semitic reports in which she suggests that ultra-Orthodox Jews, the Bicharedim in Israel, are basically the equivalent of people, uh, they're basically Sharia law equivalents. We're not against women. We're not trying to push out women. Women have their place, right? And we don't think they're less important. 
there's a difference between men and women by praying. That's the, the traditional Jewish way of doing it. And right. whoever doesn't like it, let him go to pray somewhere else. Okay. No problem. Okay, and, the, and then Riza Aslan suggests that this is just like Sharia law. Only one problem. Sharia law is Sharia law. Okay, Mea Sha'arim is not the actual law. All of the places in Israel where the Hasidim are, live a lifestyle, people are free to leave. They are free to go away. There are no honor killings in the Hasidic neighborhoods. Uh, if there is abuse of females, it is still illegal in Israel. It is not legal the way that it is in all of these Islamic countries. But naturally, Farid Zechariah tries to establish a moral equivalence between the two sides. Having segregated seating with regard to prayer is not quite the same thing as stuffing a woman into a black sack and then beating her with a stick if she gets out of it. Not quite the same thing at all. It's just really ridiculous. But again, the media have an interest in portraying all cultures as equivalent, and therefore American Christianity is just like the Taliban and ultra-Orthodox Jews, Haredim, uh, are just like Sharia law mullahs, which is just ridiculous and silly. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's show. We will be back on Thursday, tomorrow, and and uh, and Wednesday are the first two days of Passover. So if you're celebrating Passover, have a wonderful Passover. If you just celebrated Palm Sunday yesterday, I hope you had a wonderful Palm Sunday. And we'll be back on Thursday with all of the latest news. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Did you know that a baby's heart begins to beat at just three weeks? At five weeks, it can be heard on ultrasound. In some cases, the heartbeat can be the baby's only defense in the womb, which is where Preborn steps in. Preborn rescues 200 babies every day from abortion simply by providing moms with free ultrasounds that allow her to hear her child's heartbeat and see their perfectly formed body in the womb. By six weeks, the baby's eyes are forming. By 10 weeks, a baby is able to suck his or her thumb. Preborn needs our help to save these precious souls. For just 28 bucks, you could be the difference between the life or death of a baby. If you become a monthly sponsor, you'll receive stories and ultrasound pictures of the lives you helped to rescue. All gifts are tax deductible. 100% of your gift donation goes toward saving babies. To donate, dial pound 250, say keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby. Or go to preborn.com slash Ben. That's preborn.com slash Ben. Go check them out right now. Preborn.com slash Ben. It's the best thing you're going to do today or maybe ever. Dial pound 250, say keyword baby. Start saving children today.